to be betrayed, when he will be turned over to the authorities, he will be cruelly tortured and beaten, and then ultimately hung upon a cross to, to die, not for his own sins or crimes, but for the sins of others. And yet, what was on Jesus' mind at this moment was not his own concerns. Later on, he would have time to pray before his father that the cup might be taken away from him. But, but here in John, we find Jesus concerned with his disciples. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 in particular, he urges them with these words and tries to give them comfort with these commands. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus was telling his disciples to not let their hearts be troubled, it was because he knew that he was going to be betrayed that night. He knew that he would be taken away and executed. And yet, his concern was, again, for the disciples. He wants to bring them comfort in the midst of their hardest times, even though it would be the hardest time of his own life. That means that everything he says in really these few chapters of the book of John, they're forged in the furnace of that pressure and heat and are pure words to give us hope and courage in our times of trial. The command is simple. Let not your hearts be troubled. And if it only were that easy to tell your heart, hey, heart, don't be sad. Don't be grieved. Don't be hurt. And you have to understand that when he speaks of the heart here, the New Testament was written in a much different culture. Uh, for them, the heart wasn't the seed of emotions, the way we tend to associate heart with love or heart with our feelings. For them, the heart was the place that you had your deepest thoughts and concerns and convictions. So this was not telling them, don't, let, don't be emotional right now. This is not the time for feelings. No, it's, it's totally fine to feel very deeply and to have emotions at, at hard times. But what Jesus was saying or really commanding was that they would have peace in the midst of that turmoil, that uncertainty, that fear, that worry. These words then aren't just for memorial services. I, I, I think what, what Ken would want is not so much for, for us and for these words just to focus on his life, but really to minister to you, not only today, but in the days and weeks and months and years to come. Not only in the context of a funeral or in the loss of a loved one, but in any moment where your heart needs to be told, don't be troubled. Moments when we question ourselves and what we're doing. Moments when it seems like the world is out of control all around us. Moments of tragedy and moments of joy. It's for moments like this when we wrestle with knowing that someone we love has departed to go be with the Lord. But that here on earth, our lives will be missing something. 
These are words intended for all of our lives. And Jesus was going to leave his disciples. Indeed, there would be a sense of loss. And his disciples would be lost and wonder what to do next. And so these words that encourage them speak to us 2,000 years later to speak to us and should fill our hearts this morning as well. And there's four parts, um, and I'll try to be, be quick, but there's four parts to this command to let not your hearts be troubled. And he begins by saying, believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, if you don't want your heart to be troubled, trust Jesus. The disciples were Jewish men by culture, by religion, by birth. Their very existence was, was, was defined by a belief in God. Every facet of their life was governed by that belief in God. But Jesus was making a much more shocking statement than just saying, believe in God. He was making a connection, a correlation. You've been trusting God. It's what your whole existence was defined by. But now, trust also in me. That's quite a big statement for a person to make. You know, as much as you have been believing in God, and is, that has defined your existence, put that same level of trust into myself. If Jesus was anyone except for God, that would be a blasphemous statement. No one could say that. No one could say, trust me as much as you trust God. It's foolishness. But that is who Jesus was. Jesus is God in the flesh. Somehow, all of the fullness of Godhood was there, standing before them in flesh. When Jesus says, believe also in me, yes, he was equating himself with God. And everything that Jesus did, everything that he said, everything that he was communicated God's will, God's purpose, God's nature. And that meant he was worthy of their fullest trust. And Jesus was going to do one more thing that would absolutely demand that they believe in him, something that only God could do. And that is to suffer and die in order to make sinners like the disciples, like me, like you, righteous before God. Jesus is worthy of our trust, not only because he lived a perfect life, but because he is willing to exchange that perfect life for the life of those who are very imperfect. All of us, all of us have done shameful and evil things to ourselves and to others. Reckless things, purposefully, um, awful things, big things, small things, spoken things, thought things, things that God looks on with grief and also with judgment. Because if God is just, he must bring a reckoning to all injustice, or else he is not just. Of course, we're usually quite comfortable with God bringing justice to other people. We're often not so eager when it comes to judging our own thoughts, our own motives, our own words, our own deeds. But God did what he did not have to do. He allowed that someone else's perfect life be judged in the place of our own ruined that's what Jesus did most of all to merit our belief and trust. He, he died for those who deserve no mercy from God because we go about so much of our life not acknowledging him, not recognizing him. Ken believed in God, and he showed that belief by believing in his son, Jesus Christ. 
when the Bible said that all of us fall short of the glory of God, can believe that. And when the Bible said that no one can come to the Father except through the blood of Jesus, he believed that also. And when the Bible said that in Christ we do not have to fear death, can believe that to the fullest. Trust Jesus. It's the first way to let not your heart be troubled. Secondly, Jesus continued his words to the disciples by saying, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In other words, trust that Jesus serves us. Trust that Jesus serves us. When Jesus was on earth, he said that if you wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you must be least of all and servant of all. And just as Jesus served the disciples in his life and even in his death, he is also serving his disciples now by preparing a place for us. Now, this is more than just prepping a room for a guest to stay in or settling into a new home together with your newlywed spouse. Well, yes, yes, one day we do look forward to uh, a physically restored earth, a, a new body that will not know death and corruption or disease. But when Jesus says he's preparing a place, preparing a room, it's not only about a dwelling place. It's only not about real estate necessarily. It's about a status that we will have before God and before others. The Bible says that in heaven, one of the greatest things about it is that we will be co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Meaning, we will be considered with equal status and belonging and honor and glory and authority as Jesus himself who willingly shares that right, that inheritance with us. That even someone we might consider the lowliest on earth in terms of stature or possessions or political power or strength, if anyone is a Christian, they will be the recipient of an equal right to reign and rule over the universe as Jesus Christ himself. Not because we are gods, not because we become gods, but because the God willingly decides to share that with his creation. When Jesus says that he is preparing this for us, we don't need to imagine him literally going from room to room in a gigantic mansion fluffing up pillows and extravagant penthouses and suites that we have laid out for us in the new heavens, new earth. Instead, this is actually really a statement about God's willingness to receive us, about Jesus' love and service towards us, about his desire to share with us of himself and how undeserving we are of such kindness and love from the God who made us. In other religions, people must serve God. And it's not that that isn't true in biblical Christianity, but our service of God is modeled after his service for us. That's the difference. That we serve a God who serves us. The disciples were to find comfort in the fact that the God of heaven and earth and all creation was dedicating his time eagerly preparing for us to be with him forever. If this Jesus is truly God, 
does it make sense that he is in heaven and he is doing something to prepare for you? That he is serving you? That even in glory, he is taking the time to make ready our place with him? What a gracious and good. After dying for our sins and rising again from the dead, such is the God that can serve. He served the same way that God served him. He showed what kind of God he loved by demonstrating that in his service and ministry and love towards others, he had the same kind of sacrificial and gracious attitude. Not perfectly. No one is perfect. But as much as he had the grace and ability to. And now he is enjoying Christ's care for him. He is dwelling in the presence of the God who made him and called him and loved him. And that should be a tremendous comfort to us. Not only that Ken is being repaid in greater riches and honor than this world could ever hope to give. But that the same God is serving and working on the behalf of all who trust him. Trust that Jesus serves us. Thirdly, in order to not let our hearts be troubled, trust that Jesus is coming back. Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We are eager whenever someone we love is absent from us to be reunited with them again. The disciples, no doubt, Long to see Jesus again after he ascended to be with the Father. The key to Jesus' encouragement here is in the phrase that where I am, you may be also. Jesus wants to be with us. He wants us to be where he is, and he wants to be where we are as our friend, as our brother, as our Lord, as our Savior, as our God. It should be the most incredible thought of our lives that we get to be with him. And more thrilling and humbling a thought is that this awesome and glorious God also wants to be with us. It just It's one thing to want to meet a celebrity or a famous person. You think it'd be so great if I had a chance to meet so-and-so. You wouldn't expect that person to know you. But isn't it another thing entirely when a famous person or a celebrity says, I want to meet you. I've heard all about you. You seem like someone I really want to be with and get to know. Maybe you'd be blown away if, if you approached some celebrity that you never had any interaction with, but you, you want to see and meet. And they said, oh, it's you? I have been wanting to meet you my entire life. It'd just be absolutely humbling. Jesus wants to be Jesus is also looking forward to a reunion with his people. He's not only preparing a place, he is absolutely going to bring us to that place where he is. Nothing is going to stop him from being with us. He is going to make sure of it. Not the forces of hell and darkness, not even the wretchedness of our own sins and lusts and temptations can deter him from being with his people. That was Ken's hope. As much comfort as this world has to offer, as much fellowship and companionship that he had with family, friends, his cat. Again, every, almost every picture there, that smile said it all. He loved to be with you. 
And yet, what he wanted most was to be with his Savior, his brother, his friend, his Lord, his Jesus. And that is where Ken is now. Faith is suffering. Death will never again loom over his life. Ken is forever whole because he is now forever with his maker and the one who loved him and died for him. And we who are still on this side of heaven can have this hope also, not only to be reunited with Ken, but also with God, that where they both are, we will also be through faith and trust in the same Lord and Savior, brother and friend, Jesus Christ. Fourthly, Jesus said, and you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there. I'm just completely lost and amazed. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, if we want our heart to not be troubled, we must trust Jesus. We must trust that he is serving us. We must trust that he's coming back again. But we also must trust that until that day, we must live for him. Why did Jesus leave? Why did he leave? Well, the Bible says that it's because there are many others who needed to know the gift of God in repentance and in the hope of eternal life. For Jesus to have stayed on the earth after he resurrected would have meant that he was going to now rule and reign. He is the king and the creator of the universe. That's his prerogative. And that would mean that he would have to judge finally and eternally all things. For Jesus to rule and reign on the earth right now would be for there to be a justice made, an accounting of all things. But in order that people might know the long-suffering of God and the salvation of God, for his people, for, his, for, for his, his chosen ones. It meant that we, his disciples, his church, were to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ and share his good news to the world, that our lives have been changed. Our lives have been transformed by his mercy and grace. That is our mission. We live for him. That is why he has delayed in coming for 2,000 years, and that is why we are alive right now, is to be about God's business. For those of us here today who believe in the same hope as Ken, we share the same mission he had in this life, to make known this gospel. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, has died for sinners and risen again, conquering sin and death. That he is the only way, the only truth, the only life, Jesus is God, and and really this is merely saying that there is only one way to be right with God, God's way. There's only one truth in this creation, God's truth. And there's only one way to live, and that is God's life. It's it's, it's exclusive, I know. It sounds like there's only, you know, the Christians believe there's only one singular way to heaven, and that can sound awfully judgmental, and and I hear that from people. But we're not really saying there's only one way, and it's our way. What we're saying is, how can there be any other way except God's way? How can any other way compete with God's way? How can I suggest to you another way besides God's way? 
How can I tell you another truth besides God's truth? There's only God's truth. How can I suggest to you to live somehow differently than the way that God, who created all life, tells you to live? So it's not so much a statement of exclusivity. It's a statement that there is only one God and that things ought to be his way or else you can take it up with God and try to out-compete God at being God. That won't end well. Again, we serve a God who serves us. Why would I want to serve another who has never lifted a finger for me? Everything about our earthly existence, it's necessarily oriented around God, whether we accept that or not. You can't help it because you live in his world. You can't help but live in his world. His laws govern time and space. His morals govern good and evil. But living can be hard. There's suffering and trial. There's pain. There is persecution. But as Christians, we live knowing it's all about him because only he can fix what's wrong with the world and only he can fix wrong what's wrong with me. Only God can redeem that which has been broken by sin and greed and selfishness and pride. And so God intends for the hard times we face to be just as much an opportunity to bless God and trust him as the good times and the joyful times. That's what it means that Jesus told Thomas, you know the way because you know me, Thomas. You know Jesus. To live for Jesus is the only way. Ken knew that he was going to see Jesus one day. And knowing that he was going to see Jesus one day shaped and changed his life. It affected all of his It shed a light on all of the darkness. It brought meaning to all of the hardships. It dignified the worst of his pain and shame, and and it gave a focal point for all of his joys and his successes. That his thankfulness for his family, his thankfulness for his work, his thankfulness for everything was to God and for his glory, not because Ken was so great and so marvelous, but because God is. That is Jesus's the way, the truth, and the life. That's what that means. Jesus alone is worthy of it. He's the only one that has conquered sin and death, shame and pain. And he took our sins to the cross. He's the only one that has lived a perfect life, the kind that we cannot live. He's the only God that has served us to the point of death and can believe in him with his whole heart. And if he were here now, this is what he would tell you to believe also in him, Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Amen, amen. Your hearts can be not troubled. And then you can have the freedom that comes with having a relationship with the creator of the universe. If you don't know this Savior, today, even now, you can put your faith and trust in him. But if you are a Christian, then let us continue to walk the same faithful path that can walk in serving his Lord and Savior until he returns or he calls us home to be with him. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the many reminders of the goodness and the joy that you put in Ken's life, not because he deserved it, but because you are a good God. Thank you, Lord, that, that in all any inadequacies or, or failings that, that he had in his life, mistakes that he made, there's forgiveness and hope in Jesus Christ because he died for us knowing all of our 
and shame, all of our sin. Thank you for being that kind of God worthy of our trust. Thank you, Lord, that in you we can say our hearts are not troubled. Though we, we miss our brother, father, friend, we have hope in Jesus that we can see him again, whole and new. Thank you, Lord, again for this time and opportunity to celebrate not only Tom and his life, but what you have done through him. And I pray that you would get all the glory in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If I could ask the band to come up and close.